Dr. Kuntz, remind me again why, why post-millennialism is wrong? <laughs> post-millennialism is the idea that a thousand years of peace, a millennium, will precede the advent of Christ, the second advent of Christ. The reason it's wrong is that of all the eschatological options you have in Revelation and behind Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel and in the gospel apocalypses, it is just to me the most blatantly outlandish one. <laughs> because the idea that everything is going to get better and can then I, Christ... can I just call it the most blatantly optimistic one? Um, you know, I no, I don't want to do that because I don't want optimism to become to become some kind of I, I think optimism should stay purely as a as a psychological thing, which appears in varying people in varying degrees and, and sometimes not at all. I don't I don't think that matters of truth or falsehood should be described as optimistic or pessimistic, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Um and 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 partly because I, I don't find that Post-millennial people like the one probably people are most familiar with is going to be Doug Wilson today, that post-millennialists are actually in practice in any way that we would describe in a simple human way, that they're necessarily optimistic people. <laughs> so I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I, I don't want to map psychological attributes onto doctrines, partly because it causes people to overvalue psychology because it's easier for them to understand because it's about them. That's usually why they're interested deeply in it. But also because I, I don't actually find that post-millennialism is necessarily in practice, either psychologically or in some kind of expanded doctrinal sense, optimistic about the future. Doug Wilson is not He's he's optimistic, I guess, about the fortunes of the empire that he's building or something, but I'm not, on the basis of history, optimistic that it's all going to survive him. You need you need you need succession going on. And as we see in essentially every institution in the United States of America right now, this is an American problem if it's nobody else's problem. Yeah, yeah. Handoff from people that came of age in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is it practically impossible it, it just is so if you're yeah, if you're like go. if you're they like let go they yeah, won't let go my options are to go. vote for trump or biden okay <laughs> who comes after that what's that going to be like you're going to have the same thing with the canon press canon plus crec doug wilson empire after he's incapacitated or dead so we'll see what happens I'm not actually saying I'm optimistic or pessimistic about it. I simply don't know what's going to happen after that. But the idea that post-millennialism, that everything will get better, is, is not, I think, what the Bible means by the idea that we will shine or we will shine brighter and brighter until full day or any other proof texts that are going to be used in addition to their particular interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, which is where all of the debates about the millennium get to if they don't start from, and they, they probably should start from Revelation proper, is that what that really is about, or the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the face of the earth, 
that is about the preaching of the gospel. And because the preaching of the gospel is always attended by suffering and that never particularly goes away, right? The, it, it is always enough for the disciple to become like his master, right? Because of that, I, I just find post-millennialism the least credible of the options for thinking about the end times that Christians have. If you're going to go with something, you have to go with something that in which suffering is involved. So that would either be, and I'm not saying like, these are both equally legitimate. I'm just saying these actually conform to the scriptural witness about the way that the gospel spreads is that you have to go with what's either called amillennialism. And that would be the one that I, I personally believe that's, that's where my ordination vows are or what is called historic premillennialism. So not dispensationalism, no rapture where you get out of suffering, but probably a much greater investment in signs and wonders and timelines than you would find obviously with an amillennial position, but at least historic premillennialism does actually engage the fact of suffering accompanying the spread of the gospel before the second advent of Christ. I think it's hilarious that like the whole conversation could have been about like generation X post millennial, like forever. Like there's a whole nother translation that's you asked, you answered the question I asked, but the, to, to see the overlap and to move into Doug Wilson, which I had no expectation you would move into because I, I am very interested in a number of his writings, but I'm not interested in his eschatology. I haven't been. Why would I be? Um, now I am a little bit just because I find it also interesting that the whole post pre debate is about the millennium, which the amillennial, you know, but that I confess as well, effectively says Revelation is speaking about bigger things than a mere thousand years on earth. And there's a lot behind that statement. Yeah. But on the other side of it is a recognition that you could look at this from three different directions and maybe we should completely jettison the terms so nobody gets confused. But, but, you know, on the ground, you know, the sun rising, the sun falling. Yeah. Premillennialism says that it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, the ones who really push it, say worse and worse, right? Not just worse and the same, but worse and worse yeah. until Jesus comes back. Okay. And then the post mill seems to say, no, it's going to get better and better and better, not better and then worse and then better. Yeah. Better and better and better until Jesus comes back. And I would suggest that somewhere in the middle, you can, you can believe that things will get better from where you are now until when Jesus comes back without having to jump all the way to post-millennialism. And I don't know that we have categories for that okay. kind of conversation, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, just a couple of things, just, just from history that I think are helpful here is that historically, the stuff that is completely off limits for confessional Protestants is going to be post-millennialism, what is now called post-millennialism, or or any any sense and and they they don't identify it with christianity they identify it with judaism because of judaism's particular theological attachment to the idea that in the time when the messiah comes and he will of course for jews right we're not talking uh -huh. we're not talking for ancient jews we're not talking about the bible we're talking about jews like in the time of the reformation right or jews in the 16th and 17th century is that for them the messiah is of course going to be like a fleshly messiah so he will he will institute a certain polity he will bring about a certain kind of change in political relationships in military 
power in lots of things, right? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's that's the question. And so what you get condemned, not only in the Augsburg Confession, but in other Protestant confessions of that time are what are called specifically for that reason, Jewish opinions. Mm -hmm. But those ideas are going to be replicated within Christianity, particularly among what come to be called the Anabaptists. And they're the forefathers of the Mennonites and of the Amish, but that's a little hard to grasp. What they are trying to do in a place like Munster is to create the kingdom of God on earth in a set of social and political relationships, which start locally and then expand out from there. And that's kind of, that's the difficulty of identifying the kingdom of God with a certain set of social or political mm -hmm. or other let's say outward relationships rather than with the proclamation of the gospel, which of course is in a John three way, not actually under man's control mm -hmm. and in which men are always instruments. And that's, that's why I, I hold historical events and historical judgments and the fortunes of the nation that my ancestors built relatively lightly. I cannot, and I don't, and I never would identify them with the kingdom of God because I don't think Jesus does. But throughout Christian history, those who do will always end up in these endlessly complex projects, which therefore also require endless self-justification in retrospect, because you have to explain how or why things that were supposed to be perfect or were supposed to be the kingdom of God instead proved not to be. And I think that the basic issue there, and this is my basic issue with post-millennialism, what's now called post-millennialism is that it, because it identifies the kingdom of God, God's reign upon earth now before the second advent of Christ with things other than the recognition of Christ and his benefits and the proclamation of the gospel. You always have to end up justifying things like behind Doug Wilson, the, the the real intellectual push behind him, but also behind things that are sort of identified with the charismatic movement in the United States, kind of your intellectual wing of the charismatic movement in somewhere like Regent University or Oral Roberts University and their law schools, for example. He has a guy named Rusus John Rushduni, usually called R.J. Rushduni or just Rushduni. And he is really the father of this idea of postmillennialism and what its social and political effects will be because postmillennialism, usually just called millennialism at the time, grew and grew and grew as a position people had in the 19th century and then basically got wiped out in both Europe and America by the first world war. So that kind of a, a sense of what could get better or how things need to be taken or how Christians should act, particularly politically that with Rush Juni would now be generally called theonomy and people who adhere to it in, in terms of the end times are post-millennialists, but in terms of their broader philosophy, especially their political philosophy are theonomists. They, want to institute God's law in the way that Rush Juni explains it. All of that is really, for me, an artifact of thinking that the kingdom of God is the same thing as social fortunes, political fortunes, whether locally or anywhere else. 
and the difficulty is those things get swept away and they did a little over a hundred years ago in the first world war and people abandoned that position in droves the other historical thing just to note okay is that if you're going to go off the rails on understanding revelation it really to me is no accident whatsoever that the way that lutherans always did that would be in a direction of premillennialism that is being very pessimistic or looking for how the roman catholic papacy is acting currently today and what that means about the coming of christ they never went off the rails in in a in in the direction of being too optimistic about how things were going right and and you can hear reflexes in the lutheran confessions that are if they're going to go in any direction they're going to go in a pre-mill direction <laughs> okay of just saying like the world is getting worse and worse or the world is wearing out and so of course men are growing more evil right and you know i think those things are kind of debatable as his you know interpretations of all human history but they're not going in a post melt or what, what what we now call a post-millennial direction no they're going in a millennial direction which maybe we should call it ex-millennial I like that because let's leave the debate behind because the Jewish myth is the millennium, not pre or post, really. Yes, and, right. And so we can put them all in a bag and say, let's talk about America for America's sake. Let's talk about Christianity for Christianity's sake. And let's realize that Christians can rule America, but it won't be forever. It'll be for today. And today is the good you can do. So moving from there into yeah. today, some, some local news. One of my favorite pieces of things that they are trying to tell me as a PSYOP Okay. Right. So at the point when the, now they're selling me which psyop I should think is a psyop. What's going on? Taylor Swift though is all over the place, and the the claim is something like Biden's gonna get her get a go to a concert, and then twenty percent of America is gonna vote for her, and then they won't have to steal the election. <laughs> like how crazy can we get for for like the story? Uh, I see a lot more Mar Marilyn Monroe over this when I just look at her. It's just like ooh. You know, you know, RFK, JFK, Donald Trump, other side. Can you get a guy to break? Uh, you know, CIA tried it once before. It worked. You know, so I'm, I, that's my own like kind of fun for fun take. And for the Mad Mondays crowd out there or those who are not, I don't believe any of it until I see it. So what do you think, Dr. Coons? I have really just thought about Taylor Swift as a, a kind of marketing integration tool for the music business with the NFL that will also help boost something they've obviously been going for with sports generally, which is to increase women's viewership and investment in sports. So that's <laughs> that's brilliant is what that is. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of all that I see there that, that would also help, you know, so you can read stupid articles about how much airtime Taylor Swift has gotten. I think the reason is to drive viewership and you'll notice that sports fandom is now almost completely integrated with sports betting the holdouts are few and far between and vaccination and, status well right um I'm i don't know I, I i don't know how any of that is going or if it would come back necessarily i just okay. noticed that 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 sports betting really seems to be the future yeah. of televised sports 
and that the money pool between NCAA sports being opened up to athletes making money, as well as what sports betting has opened up, is that you're going to, the new normal that has been created there is that everyone is watching sports. It's not just for guys. And that when we're watching sports, we're not just making, ad, there's not just going to be ad revenue involved, or there's not just going to be periodic crossovers like the Super Bowl halftime show, but that you could integrate these things long-term and permanently so that everyone is making money, particularly over the most minute facets of any specific game, match, whatever. And that there would be a broad appeal for the whole thing in a way that, you know, wasn't true, not even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly was not true back when the NFL was being played a lot more like the NHL or, or <laughs> the NHL of yesterday, really, maybe, maybe played a little bit more like UFC. So I, I think that's what, those were the days. That's what those she's for. Days. Yeah. Man, I think that's what she's beer. for combat basketball yeah yeah i had something but i'm i mean you got me reminiscent instead on like a, a nintendo cartridge from you know 19 i don't know 89 or something oh, did i did i say that when asking the question about taylor swift let's move on to the wall street apes twitter feed where they bless their hearts are covering local news like chicago ninth ward alderman anthony beal saying uh, in chicago two other <laughs> aldermen Immigrants are getting $9,000 housing vaccines for food and free childcare. You know, of course, they're going to keep coming here. And so immigration, right? I mean, we could we could talk about Texas and the border again. We could talk about the farmer protest is going to come up, but the immigration is basically the heartbeat that you're ignoring while you're watching Taylor Swift and, and uh, the Packers. It's based on something we've talked about before, but this is where when you're thinking about political philosophy... You want to realize that you're not talking about an abstract state like the state of nature. And you're also not talking about some situation that is going to realize the kingdom of God. And because in, in almost any religion, the kingdom of God is going to have unlimited things in its nature. You can see that just in the imagery of Ezekiel or the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, or the imagery of the last couple chapters of Revelation is that there's unlimited things. There's fruit every season. It's always nice. Everything is always flowing. Everything is always green, completely unlimited. The difficulty there is that when people don't have a sense of human limitation, they tend to believe that other things will be and and if they are experienced this way now, will always remain unlimited. And Americans have a very severe difficulty with this <laughs> because our experiences of limitation are both scarce right now and the ones where the last time that the experience of limitation was widespread, like in, say, the Great Depression, is now so long ago for almost, for almost everybody alive today that it's it it's not real it's not really mm -hmm. affecting people's thinking there are other reasons to bring in almost unlimited seemingly numbers of of immigrants migrants whatever you want to call them whatever we're doing or not doing to give them or require them to have paper of any kind 
regardless of that stuff, I think the basic the basic problem here is the thinking that there will be or that there could be unlimited provision in both Chicago and Denver, as well as New York, but actually to a lesser degree, because New York is so much bigger than everything else in the United States. It's it's our only city that is on the same kind of scale of a Tokyo or a Mexico city. But all of our, let's say, second tier cities or, you know, second cities or whatever you want to think of yourself as are under absolutely incredible strain because they can't do what the government, what the federal government does in providing an allegedly unlimited amount of money for things for its own purposes. Now, we know that that's not really unlimited, but the game of pretending that resources will be or could be unlimited also for anybody that wants to show up for any amount of time <laughs> that that game just obviously cannot be played at the local level because local entities don't print money they just have people and they have to find money to pay for them so like in denver denver health which is our kind of last resort healthcare system we have others obviously but that's our last resort one you know is somewhere in the tens of millions in the red mm. from paying for the health problems of the people who have come straight up interstate 25 from El Paso, Texas. And this is, this is the first, with apologies to New Mexico, this is the first real thing that you hit when you go up I-25. So, you know, this is, it's obviously on a local level, not at all unlimited, but that facade or that illusion can be maintained at a certain level of me of national media coverage of course so what what you called attention to in chicago th this is not something that people are going to be aware of in jacksonville or in seattle necessarily no, that's why you should subscribe to mad christian mondays madpxm.com who else is going to tell you what about Ilana Mar? Did you see any of this video of her talking to a group of her constituents about how, uh, you know, it, it's Minnesota for Somali, Malians <laughs> kind of thing, you know? I don't, I don't particularly understand the attraction. I mean, I get, you know, I get that Scandinavians wanted to live in Minnesota <laughs> yeah, right. and enjoy Minnesota and Southeastern Minnesota and Northern Minnesota are very pretty, but I don't I don't particularly understand the attraction except that and this this I think is is part of the difficulty is that Somalis moving to Minnesota or the other places that there are lots of Somalis particularly Columbus Ohio or Maine they've been resettled and you know this is so set aside the issue of how did they get there who paid for them to be there who's making money off them being there they're not going to be, they, they are not net contributors anywhere. So you're talking about, I'm bringing in a population that has no proven ability to govern its own country. We're going to bring them here also in unlimited numbers via chain migration. And then we will, at that point, they, they will gradually be able to take over and talk about it publicly, which is what is now happening right? yes. in the same way yes. that that has occurred with Muslim migrants in say the United Kingdom. Okay. What I think is there's kind of two different, very strange realities here. Number one is I have asked a wide variety of people who 
are kind of opposed to the fact that we even discuss stuff like this on the show. Are, are you preaching the gospel to Somalis? I, I don't know of anyone who is. I'm sure there's somebody. It should be, for sure. But, but in, in, in that state, okay, which has an enormous number of Lutherans. Lutheran churches, that's right. I, I don't know if that's happening at all. Mm. If you know it's happening, please let me know. Okay. But I don't know that that's happening at all. So the idea that somehow immigration is a means to further the spread of the gospel, I, I don't personally buy that as a matter of political policy, which I'll talk about in a second. But the idea that, that that's, what's, that, that's what happens, it's not true in the United Kingdom and it's not true in Minnesota. Okay. So it just means that you have a completely religiously and culturally alien people now in your midst. And this is the political, and I, I don't mean by, I, I mean of this world consideration. I don't mean political, like contentious and controversial and miserable. I, I think this is a fairly obvious observation is that the idea, which all empires promote, that enormously different kinds of people should live right next to each other. Muslims from East Africa next to lukewarm Lutherans who came to Minnesota in 1880. That that's going to work long-term or that everyone's just going to get along is just not borne out by history. It's just not, okay? When empires, when, when empires collapse, that's when it gets horrible Okay. And we've talked about that with the two episodes on civil war, but even now today, it's like, okay, so your experience of social interaction goes from, you can understand this person, whether you're Somali or not. Okay. The people you're interacting with on a daily basis, you can understand them. You kind of know what they're going to do next. They speak the same language you do. Now you're moving to a situation where the reason that Ilhan Omar's stuff has been controversial or did she say this or did she not is because these, the interactions are not happening even in English. Okay. So this is equivalent to let's ship a bunch of people from St. Cloud, Minnesota to Somalia and see how things go. You know, if you want to be utopian about human nature, you can be. I'm not. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I'm psychologically pessimistic and I'm doctrinally committed to original sin and to the obvious biblical and historical observation that people live and work in groups. So I'm not just interacting with the Somali lady at the Walmart in Fairbow, Minnesota on the basis of our common humanity. I'm also interacting on the basis of she doesn't really speak English. I don't speak any Somali. She thinks that I'm a disgusting Gentile. You know, I mean, all of these things are just simply realities. So the idea that long-term we should accentuate this, or this is a good thing for everybody, Somalis, Americans, anybody. I, 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 think, it, I think it's actually one of the most unloving things you could possibly do. Because now there is just unending resentment until and unless somebody wins. Yeah. For the for the ongoing and ever-present members of the Christian church who don't want their pastors to talk about the world because it might mean they'd have to repent. Uh, if you want to let the masters enslave you with their lies, you can, but there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to. Uh, in, I believe it is uh, Denmark, you have a new prime minister 
who is speaking out about how the rule of Sharia law is no longer going to be uh, that is Netherlands. Uh, the direction of the uh, the the current regime, right? He he's gotten power now. Quote, my message to Muslims who consider the rules of the Quran over our secular laws get lost, deport to an Islamic country. This is not your country. Oh, the populist pushback. And the thing is, you know, you know, for me, in the context of the Minnesota conversation, yeah. it's just, and in what I just said to everybody else, it's like, if you want to sit there and let them move here and pass laws to enslave you over time, you can not talk about it. Or you can talk about it and love Jesus because Jesus Christ is king. And then go take care of your neighborhood, which means stopping bad laws. Uh, I'd like to know a little more about this uh, particular, is it Netherlands again, and this politician and that yeah, movement? Is this a Malay kind of kind of thing? Gerrit Wilders is, you know, has has very blonde hair. I mean, he was kind of had kind of had Trump hair long before Trump. He's been nice. around for a while. Oh, look at that. He's been around for a while, but his his message has always been about these kind of base level considerations rather than something that you you notice about and this is a little easier to see in Europe because all of these little petri dishes of human experimentation how many how many people from morocco can we put in paris before it's paris no longer or whatever right is that europe is just on a much smaller scale than the united states so it's easier to see what's happening but we have the same dynamics here. And I I have come to think about the word populist in a in a political sense in the same way that that I think about the word pietist in a in a church sense. And that is you're probably just using that word to make me feel bad. And and I don't feel bad. <laughs> and I wish you would just engage the issue instead of using your special shutdown word because Populist. I mean, I I don't actually have a lot of faith in like the masses per se. Elon Musk just is saying he's moving to Texas because of his vote. I mean, it was such an easy vote. Of course, everyone was going to say yes, right? But he, <laughs> right. I don't know. I can't tell if he is a, an actual Democrat in that regard. But keep going, keep going. But yeah, but I mean, I, I'm not saying like the masses have incredible wisdom. I'm saying it is destructive for an authority to not care at all about the people under its authority. That's the yes. same thing yeah. as yeah. a pastor who doesn't preach the Bible, as a father who doesn't care for his family. It's the same problem transferred to the, the order of government. And if caring about the welfare of the people who actually live there and, and just understanding basic issues of s supply and demand in the case of if I always have immigration, of course, the value of labor is going to be extremely low. So, of course, both parents will have to work. So, of course, the state will educate the child. I mean, these things are all connected. If I choke off the supply of inflow to a state, to a country, to whatever, and you know that now we just have to pay the people who are here, you know. A, just apart from the cultural issues, the alienation, not being able to even talk to each other and immigrants not even caring to learn the language anymore, all of those things, right? If caring about the welfare of that average person is populism, then I'm a populist. But I'm not, I'm not sitting there saying like every single person who sits in the pew 
is the greatest theologian in the world. Every single person who has a job is the greatest economist in America or the Netherlands or whatever. I'm saying like, if you're in charge of the spiritual welfare of that person in the pew, or you're in charge of the well-being in this world of that person in Jacksonville, Florida, or, you know, Columbus, Ohio, and you're not trying to help them on the basic level of, are you going to bring in so many people that their labor is worth nothing and the options open to them are crappy service jobs or they can train their replacement at at work who will do their job for way less remotely from India or whatever. I mean, like you're just at that you're just a heartless bastard. <laughs> That's all you are. And and I, I'm not yeah, I don't Dr. have Kieran, there's homeschool kids listening. Yeah, it's fine. Show. You know, I mean that that word does have a specific meaning. It I'm does. Not, you know, I'm not using I'm a, it. I'm as, a fan. It's illegitimate. You are yes. illegitimate. That's what that word means. You're illegitimate. And that doesn't really make me a populist in the sense of like I'm catering to their worst instincts or something. But you will notice that when people have thoughts about immigration or something, is that those will almost uniformly be portrayed as irrational and evil. You, you always want to notice when something is being portrayed as irrational and evil. Whereas, it's almost like the word Nazi. It's almost like the word Nazi. Yeah, right, right. As, as if you wake up every day motivated by complete rage against some select portion of the human race. It's, it's it, my devotion to Plato's Republic, really, because it gets me going. You know, I, I, I just can't leave it behind. Right. I mean, it, <laughs> instead of, you know, you're, you're a human being too, you just happen to have been born here rather than have the wonderful status of immigrating here. You just happen to have been born here and you have like rational thoughts about your job and who gets to do it and what your town looks like and all kinds of stuff like that. So I think that Populism, I have come to think of as 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 mainly a slur. You could use it in a clear sense to talk about a certain way of doing politics that would be something like being a demagogue, just saying whatever people want to hear. But in that in that sense, it, it could be applied to almost anybody in a modern democracy, <laughs> right? That's it's it it is not the same thing as you know, actually desiring the welfare and the flourishing of the people it, under your authority. It seems to me like it's the slur term for democracy that, you yeah. know, Democrats, Democrats know how to use, you know, I, it, and then they shout democracy and they kind of mean the same thing, but on their side. And so again, yeah, it's just, a, it's a distinction that's meant to, to, to keep you down. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested again in the rise of, first off, I'm interested in the rise of conservative, small unknowns in terms of the region, right? Netherlands is going to fight back. You know, Argentina is going to fight back. So the narrative says. And then I'm, I, of course, I'm. It's amazing to me how many of them have this hair issue. I mean, that really is like, how do the patterns line up that way? But more, it's the the legacy of their thought, their kind of trajectory as men in politics. You know, where were they ten years ago when it was dot dot dot. I, I find that interesting yeah. because I think that's a lot of where they're going to go. And so if you're looking at these, these individuals, you know, you know, or where's the money come from again, how did they win that election? Those are the stories I keep asking because I don't necessarily trust the stories. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to take what we get and then turn it into something I can, I can know for sure. And so, so moving forward here, uh, another story that shows up, uh, you know, our, our schools are teaching 
children about proper gender pronouns, pronouns. Meanwhile, and there's a video of some children playing with assault rifles hooked up to iPhones in a, I don't know, a mall. And they're all practicing with their video game assault rifles situation, killing each other. And they're all, I don't know, eight, seven. And so the implication here is look at what China is doing to train its kids. You know, look at them go. Oh, and, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's just, well, you, you follow it up and it's like an agent unknown or first article shooter, whatever the next game is that they just finished or blah, blah. The kids are playing it. And I would have loved it. It's practically VR, but it's better than VR. It's augmented. And I, I would have been all over this as a kid. And then my mom would have said, you can't play with guns. And then I would have been able to play with the boys and I'd watch them. I'd be sad. But in any case, you know, it, the way the story moves in the timeline, the assumptions that are there when, when someone throws it out there, yeah. uh, this is what I think we must practice being good at. Why do I talk about these things? Because I don't want you to get lied to again. That's why, yeah. you know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I would say that realistically, it it is likely, <laughs> it's highly likely due to the decline of our capacity to control the area that that Taiwan will become formally part of mainland China in our lifetimes and and probably a lot sooner than quote, in our lifetimes. Yeah, this year or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's very possible. Right. That's that's yep. very, very possible. Um, and it would just be the island version of what happened with Macau and yep. a little more famously Hong Kong is that yep. uh, a Euro a, a Euro American, a Western power fails to project power like it had. And mm -hmm. uh, also in a way that is quasi mysterious, fails to even be interested in maintaining the power that it's that it has. OK, right. so so there's that. A lot of what is said, however, about China is essentially demoralization propaganda. Like, yeah, right. like we are going to be run over and we're all weak and we're all destroying ourselves. And, you know, it's it's kind of the the version for consumption by conservative people of, you know, if you if you survey the various political parties, all Americans really, but especially on the left, they'll tell you that like. 25% of people are homosexual in some way, <laughs> right? Or, you know, 40% of Americans are black or whatever. Like no one has a realistic sense of who is even in the world. So you're feeding to Americans who we kind of famously, and there are reasons for this, but it doesn't make them good. We don't know foreign languages. <laughs> we don't know anyone else's history. We barely know our own. It's like, revolution, civil war, world war two, <laughs> right? We don't know anything really about our own country, let alone anywhere else. And we're saying something like the Chinese are, you know, and if you look at China, are, are Americans aware of what's going on with the Chinese stock market right now, let alone, do they have a realistic sense of what happens when you have one or less than one kid for the past 45, 50, 60 years, mm -hmm. Where are you gonna where are you gonna end up as a country right what what happens to you and what universally okay so this is not this doesn't seem to be a function of like you know if you just have a little bit more democracy or free markets universally a society that becomes more affluent suffers on a human level 
and on for political purposes on a demographic level in a way that nobody's going to predict. So kind of like nobody predicted that Japan and South Korea would come back from complete devastation by war, particularly Japan after the Second World War in their case, or the Korean War in the case of South Korea. Those are still relatively morally very traditional societies. How many Japanese or South Koreans are there going to be in 50 years? Compared to today, not that many. You know, so if China, yeah, okay, so China has, China is not at war with its major ethnic group, right? The Chinese government is, you know, it's not, is, is, is not anti Han in well, the way, just, right? We think of China as Han, right? You think yeah, of China, you, you right. think of a Han person, even though there are many, many people live in China that are not Han. And so we talk, this is kind of the thing, we should talk about the Han as, as reigning, this them who are reigning, they just use the, the branding of China. I didn't make that argument up, by the way. There's Chinese people who say this argument. Yeah. You're right. Oh, yeah, I know, totally. I know, I know you have. I'm talking to people, you know, I, of course, you've read. <laughs> Go. But, you know, I mean, kind of, kind of inter-Asian ethnic conflict aside, the idea that a country is going to become vastly more affluent and somehow survive that as a spiritual crisis, which will then have knock-on effects in everything else about life because man does not live by bread alone. If he yeah. doesn't live by the every every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he w he will live on something in his spirit. And what affluence does is that it it fills his spirit with lots of delusions, confusions, and so forth that afflict every affluent society or affluent class within a society everywhere, always. Hmm. So I think the idea that somehow the Chinese are <laughs> producing a you know, a, a a soldier class of Han supermen who, you know, after failing to actually even completely stomp out Tibetan resistance, they're going to just destroy America forever or something. I can write a sci-fi book about it. It's all yeah. about how they tell the kids when they're young, you won't have wives unless you take them from the white man or some stuff like that. But you're, the point about Tibet's really good. Um, why would they not just do that by overwhelming numbers? It is interesting. And, they, and, um, and, and yeah. I mean, they, they have, the, I mean, the, the Chinese, the, the Han specifically have tried to replace a wide variety of minority groups, particularly in the South and the, the West Ur of Uyghurs? the Uyghurs, the one that's the Uyghurs, Uyghurs, that's it. Yeah. The Uyghurs, the Tibetans, but even in what we think of as kind of like tropical China, down where the pandas are, yeah. um, Yunnan province, you have a lot They're of minority everywhere? groups. They're not all over. They're not all over. No. What? No. No, because I mean China's huge, right? So <laughs> know, it has the just... it has the same kind of the you know climatic variation the US does. So I know. It's right. great. It's great. It's just it's just the uh the I'm I'm playing with the mindset of the kid again who's gonna be like, China, pandas are everywhere. I gotta yeah, I mean, there's if, Chinese if, food if, there. Right. If we think that pandas <laughs> are like running around in Harbin, you know, right. which is basically like the Cleveland of China. If we think that that pandas are just running around there, then then why would we know anything about the kind of crises that they exactly. are in? Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so speaking of crises that we should know about that probably we do not know about that are in, there's a lot of farmers driving tractors all over Europe right now. And it's stunning. I, I you know, if this is CGI and they're really faking us out, I mean, again, yeah, AI art, I don't know. Man, these guys, Hunter got arrested recently and uh, they're, they're throwing poop on stuff. They're tearing up roads They're And it, it made me just kind of sit back and think twice 
about the Second Amendment, particularly because kind of the theory is, well, we've got our guns and everyone else is screwed. They're in trouble. They're, they're in great, great trouble. And this army of tractors is just who's leading these people like where where's the is napoleon with them i mean this is incredible the yeah, genius I, behind it you know i i don't know the answer to that it seems that it's organized in the same ways that like the trucker convoy in canada a couple years back or forms of resistance or demonstration are organized in that way and i'm sure that there will be and there already are effects on people's capacity to use social media. I haven't looked into that specifically, but the, the reason that I suspect that is that you're dealing with existential threats to the idea that they, that they can farm at all. So France is really unusual in this regard because it has never we would say maybe liberalized or succumbed to an, an idea of free trade to which the rest of the Eurozone has been subject, but that, for example, American farmers obviously are, are almost entirely subject. Our farmers are receiving subsidies for various things. That's trying to incentivize certain forms of production, of course, but they're also not really being protected from competition, right? From say soybeans from Brazil. The French chose a completely different path. They chose to protect their agricultural sector to make it a matter of national pride. So you can find French presidents and premiers will, will always appear at the equivalent of like what we would call a state fair or a county fair and, and pose with, you know, like prize bulls. Right. And the reason they're doing this is that it was a matter of their own pride in the same way that they produced their own aircraft or decided, you know, to go their own way out of NATO or various things like that. The idea that then they are going to succumb to the same policies and not protect matters of national pride. And this, mm. the farm sector is one example is a giant change and it's a it's a push to integrate france into europe in in the very opposite way it's the very opposite of what de gaulle did where de gaulle said after the second world war look we're going to be our own country we're not going to be just an annex of the united states and what i think is particularly nuts about this because obviously the world financial system that is run through us which is the thing that the BRICS that we talked about. Yeah, because I was. Year, was. <laughs> right. Yeah, that they're kind of opting out of, right? Is the idea that somehow that world financial system with its investment priorities, with its ESG requirements, with its incessant discussion of climate change and how we just have to adapt, right? So it's kind of a very slow moving version of COVID. Like we're going to tell you what reality is and then you're going to lose money if you don't adapt to it. What's really weird is that Europe is investing even more strongly in that, in that world and in that functioning, and even France is doing so. At the very time when, from my perspective, from our country, we are, we are weaker than ever. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we deserve people's full faith and credit in our international hegemony less than ever before. 
but the French are now punishing their own farmers, which they haven't historically, in order to conform them to the investment priorities, environmental mandates, and, and so forth that, are that have caused farmers in the Netherlands and Germany to do this before. The resilience to see the tractor as a tank is just something I think everyone who has a rifle or 17 rifles that they don't shoot often enough ought to think about more. Uh, in, in Gaza, uh, you're probably not allowed to have a rifle. I, there's a video, you can find it. I, I retweeted it if you want to look at it. I'll describe it to you. It is a family of about seven with two adult males in it uh, walking with a cart that they're pulling. It's, it's kind of a shanty home. Imagine like, you know, the Quakers going across America and a cool little cart only. This one's made for a war-torn country because there's rubble and destruction behind them any, everywhere. And the gentleman uh, is shouting, and then there's translation, which you have to trust. He's shouting about what the leaders of Hamas are doing, the the financial greed and and corruption, the the wealthy lifestyle they're just creating through this catastrophe. And he basically shouts, "Don't leave us, kill Hamas!" Uh, and then he walks on. Uh, this is not a promotion for the nation state of Israel, nor for the banks of Switzerland. Uh, please continue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have my doubts. But <laughs> the identification of Palestinians with Hamas is 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 a product of who was willing to stay and fight the Israelis. Okay, so most Americans are generally, you know, unaware that at least historically, I don't know what it is. You know, February first, twenty twenty four, day before Groundhog Day, is how I think of it. I don't know if it's still true, but historically, the predominant majority of Arab Americans were Christians. And the, whatever you want to call it, the foundation of Israel, it would be called the Nakba by the Palestinians, the destruction of Palestine as a sort of Muslim hyphen Christian governed state, somewhat like Lebanon is or that Syria was historically too, to a lesser degree. That, that produced migration specifically by those people who had the most to gain by leaving. And that would be the Christian Arabs because they had, they, they might've had relatives already from, from earlier immigration to Europe or to the United States. In the case of like the Lebanese, maybe that's, that's definitely true, but they have, they have co-religionists that they can go to and they can feel comfortable in a country like the United States, which is preponderantly Christian. So who stays, right? When, when, something, when something catastrophic happens, who sticks around, right? It's sort of the same question that you get when you have the destruction of Jerusalem the first time, right? The Old Testament destruction of Jerusalem is that if you're not paying close attention either to that or to the destruction of Samaria earlier with the Northern Kingdom, you don't realize like a lot of people just stay around. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people like are going to have trouble going somewhere. So the, the idea of flight relies on not just your capacity to get going, but also having somewhere to go. And if you, if you have somewhere to go, it's, it's relatively easy to get going. If you don't have anywhere to go, then, then what are you supposed to do, right? And the idea that Hamas is somehow making this harder is both obviously true and 
at least debatably false. It's obviously true that Hamas is one of the last political elements resisting, depending on the day of the week or who you're talking to, the existence of the nation state of Israel all the way to resisting, you know, simply the destruction of their own people group. Okay. So that there's plenty of room for debate inside there. But what's what's debatably false is the idea that somehow <laughs> the Israelis come in, the what what we now call the Israelis get power, right? And they have functional independent political power as of the 1930s. That's the Zionist agency. And then that will be the 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 proto version of the Israeli state after 1948. Okay that somehow they come in, they do all this, but it's the fault of Hamas. It, that's kind of, that's where it's kind of awkward. It's like, I can see how Hamas could make the situation worse. I can also see where this is a very complex chain of events. And the idea that there's, you know, there's, there's one thing wrong right now. And if we fix it, everything will be fine. Chicken's um, going to be dead. The egg's going to be scrambled. You know, it won't be anything yeah, left. Right. I, I think, okay, th this is, this is a function of not just being far away, but it's also a function of people like being raised on video games is that they think that there is a solution. And yeah, that's right. the word that's always used yeah. solution, a two state solution, a single state solution. What, you know, and it's like, that's <laughs> Notice the alchemy. Notice the alchemy and the thinking. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is not, life is not under your control to this degree. Let's say that you're an Israeli infantry officer. What are you supposed to do? Maybe you have some moral qualms about what you're, what are you supposed to do right now? Let's say you live in Gaza. God help you, right? What are, what exactly are you supposed to do? You know? The, the guys in the hospital might be Israelis dressed up like Muslims for today's purposes, and they might shoot some people. That happened recently, too. So the idea that somehow like human light, and it, this is this is why I the idea that the kingdom of God is the same thing as like the functioning of any particular society or polity has always seemed insane to me. Because what what if this is us, right? And, and now I have to explain why this was actually good. I mean, can, can you not just live with a, do you, can you not just say I'm a sinner? I have three horrendous options, but when people think of everything as like a solution or there's going to be a button or yeah, if you want to go farther back, there's, there's a, there's an alchemical resolution presented by a wizard. All of those rely on the idea that human beings are in control of history and can fix everything. If we right. just get the right human beings in charge, right? Yeah. If what, right. Well, we're always trying to think about that and that solution for things that have nothing to do with their actual lives, which Senator Josh Hawley grilling Mark Zuckerberg over child sex trafficking being allowed, actually maybe almost promoted through Instagram is not something we can do anything about quite, although it follows up on our stories from, from last week. And the, the question, you know, what's closer to home that you can fight? Where can you stand up? What are you going to do? Because the answer is not to sit back and do nothing, is to recognize that, yeah, we're not going to necessarily be able to help France right now. And you go ahead and retweet. You retweet for France, okay? But after that, you know, we have to do something here. Yeah. And I'm glad for senators and congressmen who are beginning to call out 
the technocrats, specifically the technocrats, for their gradual usurpation of the American governing system. And so, you know, your thoughts here are, of course, welcome. I think that you have to you have to realize that if something is going to be sensitive for the person presenting the information to you, a journalist, somebody that writes for Verge, who covers tech and probably lives around tech or whatever, is that just like with an individual person, when they're failing to present what they did wrong to you, there will be a really, really heavy use of euphemism. So this hearing, according to the the uh, little clip from C-SPAN, the C-SPAN header over top of where it says Mark Zuckerberg from Meta, and, and I'm glad Zuckerberg wore a tie. I thought he should have worn his jiu-jitsu gi. I was disappointed. <laughs> I'm glad he wore a tie. Not everything is falling apart. But uh, Zuck, Zuck doesn't even wear. He doesn't wear. Well, he's not. He's not human. But whatever no, he is, I, he did. He did well, wear a suit. And, and lizard I, people. Is that episode one? Lizard people. I don't know. It is. But I appreciate the suit. But it says <laughs> over top of him. It says online child sexual exploitation. If they wanted to be just clearer, right? And and online makes it sound like it's not happening. Yeah. You might say in real life. Okay. Because it sounds like it's just happening on the internet, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm not playing solitaire in real life. I'm playing it on my computer. Okay, online, a child. Okay, that's kind of a big word. But what is the adjective doing to the word exploitation there? And what is exploitation? <laughs> is it is it wrong or is it just like when you drink too much soda? Or is drinking soda at all wrong? It's not really clear. I think selling Coca-Cola to children is exploitation. I was yeah, sure. I mean, they could use the word, they could just use the word slavery. Amen. They could have just used that, but they didn't. You know, so you always want to watch, I think, especially adjectives. When somebody's always using adjectives or when they use adverbs, those those are very weaselly things and you want to pay attention to the nouns and the verbs and see if what is actually happening in the verbs. So why is Josh Hawley so angry? He's not angry because Mark Zuckerberg let people post like cartoons, right? The, the thing that he's angry about involves the, if we, if we want to use a, I think a little better noun, you could say abuse, but if you wanted to actually just be a little bit more specific, you'd say, this is slavery. You take a human being from his natural setting mm. and you put him in an unnatural setting for your own purposes, right? That's, mm. that's what's called man stealing in the King James Bible. So if that's going to happen, then, then you could talk about that as slavery, but they don't. So you want to you want to know like well why why can't we call it that or why don't we call it that or why do um, we let's start you know i mean why why do why do we even use this word trafficking hmm. cuz it that sounds like it's about movement and not about people and it it's sort of like about people on a second level like after you stop and think about it but it sounds like it's just about stuff moving around and 
there's drug trafficking and then there's see how it's an adjective and not a noun there's human trafficking yeah as opposed to the trade right yeah slave trade but if you yeah if you say slavery or slave trade then what you're saying you know and <laughs> we can stop and you know talk about old testament slavery sometime i don't, I don't think for these purposes it matters get out the all man get out the all that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's local <laughs> and, and they say, like, yeah, you know, I'd really like to stick around here. You know, obviously that's totally different than what's going on here with children, mm -hmm. which is slavery right? or man stealing, to be more specific. You're taking a human being from his natural setting and you're gonna use him in wherever you put him for his own purposes. Yeah, and then for your own purposes. To add to add the the sexual abuse to the thing for the it's just, it's a level, you know, of breaking as many sins as possible at once. It's a great abominable evil, you know, child sacrifice. Well, we already got that one on the line too. We talked about that last week. Right. So kind of the last one that was in my yeah. list of stuff for today is, <laughs> it's more of a meme. I don't pass the memes forward too much because I think that, you know, we're not going to win by memeing. But this one I think is a really good idea. I, I think we should do it as a national thing. And it's, it's this simple. It's okay. a voter ID campaign. And the whole campaign is, you know, voter ID, don't let Trump cheat. Voter ID, don't let Trump cheat. And you just, you push the populist campaign and we need voter IDs because Trump's going to cheat. And it, hopefully you got the joke at home. The uh, the the frustration here though, uh, is that, you know, this isn't going to be a real campaign. This isn't what's going to happen. It's funny, we laugh, aha, this is the problem, problem with memes. It's upside down too, right? They've got us to like, spend time making art about what we're not going to do so we can laugh as it falls apart around us. And there's something really sick about that. Gnostic, can I call it that? Is it cynical? Is it stoic? I don't know. It's it's not necessarily Christian, although again, I did find it funny. I'm sharing it now. The, the goal of this episode, right? Uh, this is one of the first times I've kind of set up something for us to talk about as a chain. And uh, it has been to tie these pieces together and help you, listener, Try to form your own capacity for defining your narrative based upon trustworthy witnesses who will be people you know. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or we wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish 
may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.